0: Let's go to our God once more this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, indeed, as we come to the teaching and preaching of your word this morning, we pray indeed like that last song, come thou fount, that you would tune our hearts to sing thy grace, reveling in your streams of mercy, that you have poured out on us in Jesus. Father Lord, we thank you so much just for all that you do for us. Lord, for your many blessings. And this morning, Lord, as a church, we want to rejoice in the blessing that you have given to both Johnny and Lois Scattergood this week and the birth of their son, Austin John. Father Lord, we pray for... uh, The scattergoods, Lord, as they adjust from being a family of four to a family of five. Father, Lord, we pray for Johnny and Lois especially, Lord, as uh, they are getting little sleep uh, for the next several weeks to months. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help that short amount of sleep that they get to feel like a full night's rest so that they can be rested. Help them to rejoice in the blessing that you have given them. And Lord, to shepherd this little heart well pointing them, him, to Jesus. Father, Lord, we also pray for little uh, Austin John and his uh, continued struggle with his blood sugar levels. God, we pray, Lord, that you would help uh, the doctors and nurses be able to figure out how to get that managed and under control, Lord, so that he can come home. God, continue to uh, strengthen his little body. And Lord, uh, be with John and Lois as well as they uh, are eager to bring Austin home. God, be with them in the days ahead. God, we also uh, not only want to pray for our church and church family this morning, but we want to pray for other churches. Where this morning, we want to pray for our sister church just down the road in Crossroads Baptist Church and their pastor, Ronnie Tabor. God, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will uh, make yourself known there this morning through the preaching and teaching of your word. Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will continue to do a mighty work in, in that congregation in building it up so that they may rejoice in you, Father. Father, Lord, we also want to pray for our missionaries around the world. We want to pray this morning for James and Sonia Heron and their work in the islands of Lake Victoria there in Uganda. Father, Lord, we thank you that uh, these uh, and their children have been sent out through the International Mission Board and serving there uh, in the islands of Lake Victoria. Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, for them to be able to have opportunity, uh, Father, to uh, make more trips to the island as they have been limited in the midst of COVID. God, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would bless their work. And Lord, even now, as Travel times are limited. Lord, help prepare hearts now to receive the gospel. Help many there to come to believe and begin to do that work now, Father, ahead of time so that people are ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, Lord, we pray too, Lord, that we will be a people to receive your word. Lord, help us to still our minds and quiet our hearts now as we come to the preaching and teaching of your word, would help us to see what it is you have to say about the permanence of marriage and that of faith. God, we pray, Lord, for us to hear these things this morning from your word and that we would walk accordingly in light of our faith in Christ. Lord, we pray and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question that might or might not resonate with most of you. How many of you have been snipe hunting? And if you've not, we need to take you. <laughs> you those of you who are familiar with this term know that every youth, every time you take children camping, you say, let's go snipe hunting. And you build it up anticipating with this eagerness to go and, and hunt for these. You, you make up what they're about. It, the, the catch is you're teaching them a fib. There's no such thing as snipe. But they don't know that. They're trusting because this is parents that are telling them this. They're trusting because this is trusted adult leaders who are, are telling them all about this. And it's really fun to watch the older kids who have done it before and been fooled as they want to pass it on down to the next generation. They have a lot of fun with it. It's a load of fun when you do this. I've done this on every middle school and high school uh, guys camp out that that I've been a part of. And it's always fun to see those little trusting hearts believe what you have to say only to crush them. It seems very cruel. Because those hearts do trust. They're eager and quick to trust in those before them. But you know, there's another kind of trust this morning I want us to look at. I want us to look at a trust of that kind of trust in Jesus. That's what faith is all about. It's about deep childlike trust in the person of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I know last week uh, the bulletin said we were going to cover Mark 10 in its entirety, but we're going to only look at the verse 31 verses of Mark 10 this morning. I want to just slow down and camp out here on what it has to say on marriage, but more importantly, this act of faith and trust. As we've worked our way through the gospel of Mark, we continue to see the call of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see the most crucial piece of that, namely to trust with faith. So follow along with me as I read in Mark 10, verses 1 through 31. The word of the Lord says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother.' And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I think the main point of this text, and therefore, uh, doing, if doing this whole preaching thing correctly, the main point of the sermon is this. Salvation does not come through the keeping of the law, but through childlike faith and dependence on God through Christ. Therefore, Christian, let us rest in God's gift to us in Christ and follow our king. Let me repeat that. Salvation does not come through the keeping of the law, but through childlike faith and dependence on God through Christ. Therefore, Christian, let us rest in God's gift to us in Christ and follow our king. We're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, matters of the law. Point number two, inheriting eternal life. And point number three, leaving it all. These points are just kind of little handlebars for us to hold on as as we go. That way, if you get lost, you can grab on and hang on for dear life, knowing where we're at in the midst of the sermon. So let's look here at point number one, matters of the law. Jesus is a teacher by trade. He loves to teach. He spends his life pouring into others and teaching others. So once more, as the crowds gather around him, he begins to do what he does best. He teaches. The teachers are amidst know that they can't stop teaching no matter what. It's part of their nature, just as it is with that of Christ. So as they leave and are coming into the region of Judea, Jesus begins to teach as his custom. And then there... In verse 2, it says, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees, a group of religious, pious leaders, come and begin to try and question Jesus. They want to essentially put him on trial and put him to the test. Are you are you not going to affirm divorce? More importantly, are you going to deny the law and its purpose? They want Jesus to fail the trial. They want him to be charged as guilty and expose him, so they think. And yet, the crazy part is here, as they ask this question, as they attempt to put Jesus on trial, notice what Jesus does in the following verse. It says there in verse 3, He answered them, what did Moses command you? Instead of Jesus now on trial, he flips it. He says, what did Moses command? What did he write? Wanting them to have to think about it. What is it that Moses actually wrote regarding divorce? You know, so often we we look and, and see things throughout Scripture, but often they're isolated in their context. They're isolated and and without a context. You know, even famous verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A verse like this without context means, you know what, I can go out and be Michael Jordan. I'm going to go in the gym here and, and I'm going to slam, jam, bam, awesome, baby. If there was no context, that might be true. But the thing is, there's context. Paul writes to the people and saying that here I can endure all things in the midst of suffering, in the midst of want and need. I can endure all things because Christ is my substance. Christ is the one who sustains me. He's not talking about going and, and jumping like Michael Jordan. Most of the world would be jumping like Michael Jordan if that was the case. Man's the best basketball player of all time. Argue with me after. But the point is, there's context. And Jesus wants to expose the hearts of the Pharisees in this. He wants to expose them in their foolishness that they've missed the point of divorce in the law. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is where they respond. Let's look here at verse 4 first, and then I'll read Deuteronomy There in verse 4, it says, They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. But what was the context? Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Again, isolated, even this can be seen as confusing and, and what is going on? What are you saying here, Moses, in this law? But the reality is this comes after, G, uh, after Moses over and over again teaching divorce isn't there. Marriage is permanent. Jesus or Moses teaches the people that here if you are to corrupt a woman in coming and doing sexual immorality, you keep her. She's your wife. Forever. You do not put her away because you are the one who have defiled her. It guards and protects the woman from being the one in society that's seen as is vile and, and defiled so that she's cared for. And the same thing is taking place here in Deuteronomy 24. It's about, notice how it ends here. It says, if her former husband, he can't take her back. In other words, he can't pay be paid a second payment a second bride price, and receive it because he's already put her away once. This has nothing to do with allowing divorce. It has everything to do with a culture that is already hardened towards divorce and saying, I'm going to protect the innocent here from you wronging them. The law here is one not of allowance, but it is protecting society. If you look at the Old Testament, especially in the law, yes, it gives us matters of what we're to do in order to be right in God's eyes, but it also protects the innocent of the innocent. It protects people from being defiled and wrong. It's a structure that was intended to be set up in all societies in order to protect the people. It was not, though, to allow divorce. But the Pharisees miss this because they do so without the context. They misinterpret it. Notice what what Jesus goes on to say here to to drive this point home. He says there in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees wanted to put Jesus on trial. Is divorce lawful? And Jesus returns to God's very design of marriage, of creation. Male and female, he created them. One, that should be astounding. And today, when people want to redefine everything, God, from the very beginning, made it male and female. He created two genders. These things are to be celebrated. Gender is to be one that is celebrated. He made them male and female. God gave these. But what happens it go, It says there next in verse 7, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the picture of exactly what Adam did in the very beginning. Yes, Adam did not have a, a physical father and mother, but he was the example to come because the rest of us came from father and mother. We came through them. And so therefore the picture is we leave father and mother and take our wife. We become one flesh with her. We abandon, we forsake that relationship with mom and dad to cling to one another. The idea here of marriage is marriage being the strongest relationship in society apart from a relationship with God. Tim Keller in The Meaning of Marriage writes, he says, marriage next to our relationship to God is the most profound relationships there is. In other words, this is the most important relationship we have with one another in this earth, between a husband and a wife. And what has been two is now one, and they're not to be separated. So no, the answer point blank is no. Divorce is not allowed. The law is not about allowing divorce. There are exceptions to that. And we see this in the other Gospels uh, of Matthew and uh, Luke's Gospel. Throw in, except for that of sexual immorality, except for that of adultery. There is allowance of divorce in those. And there are other Exceptions of where brutal sin and unrepentant sin is taking place. We see in 1 Corinthians, if an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, the believing spouse is free to let them go. We see uh, the, the idea that it, uh, of abuse throughout Scripture, that that is wrong. And therefore, yes, there is a means of separation and divorce. But overall, the norm is not meant to be divorce. It's not meant to be And yet it's prevalent in a society. You know, yesterday I, I commended Augie and Carol on, on 50 years of being married. In, in getting to celebrate that, it is to be. Because we live in a society and a culture where divorce is the norm. We don't like what one another does, so we put them out of favor. The, the whole point of Deuteronomy 24 was men would look at their wives and say, you know what, I've lost favor with you. I'm going to just give you this writing of divorce and put you out on your own, even though I've already paid a bride price for you and, and different things. Now they're going to, to put away, to forsake, to abandon. But that's not what's meant to take place. But there's a better reason why. Why? Because picture of marriage is a picture of the gospel. In Christ, when Christ laid down his life, he purchased a bride for himself. He took her up as his own, making her spotless, without stain, without blemish. For his sake, to cleanse her and have as his own. Imagine, though, if Christ treated marriage in a marriage covenant the way we treat marriage in a marriage covenant. Wishy-washy. Christ, am I in favor today? Am I still having favor in your eyes? We'd have to be laboring so hard to make sure we're pleasing Christ in order to maintain salvation, to maintain what is his as ours. Because he could then just write us off with divorce. But that's not what the marriage picture of the gospel is. It's by coming to Jesus in that faith, which we're going to unfold in a moment, and believing in him. And therefore, in that, we're united permanently. All that is his is ours. We have justification because of Christ. We have sanctification and grow in sanctification because of Christ. We have an inheritance to come because of Christ. All that is his becomes ours. And this is the picture that marriage is to display in and to the world. Therefore, if the marriage supper between Christ and his bride, the church is to be permanent, how much more what's representing it Brothers and sisters, too often we miss the idea of marriage because we don't look at it from God's design of creation. We don't look at it from a Christocentric lens. We need to see marriage is the most beautiful picture of the gospel whether single or married, we should rejoice in this because it is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church, who we are all as Christians a part of that bride. We rejoice in it. We need to see this as foundational. And once we see and understand God's design for marriage and God's picture of marriage for portraying the gospel Then we begin to actually understand divorce is not an option for the Christian. It is not to be the norm. And then we actually begin to fight for our marriages. We begin to fight for the primary of marriage being that ultimate and most splendor picture of the gospel. So how do we fight, though, for that? How do we continue in a society that wants to push divorce, fight for divorce? Marriage, it takes work. Brothers and sisters, in in any marriage, no matter what, there's going to be days where we just quite frankly don't like our spouse for some reason or another. And maybe that's most days. But the thing of entering a covenant is not about being willy-nilly in what we feel like that day. It's about honoring that covenant and keeping that covenant and choosing to love just as God has entered into covenant with us in Christ and chosen to love us even as we continue to fail and to walk in sin. So husbands, wives, we must continue to pursue one another. We must continue to, to fight uh, as one book uh, called Fierce Marriage talks about fighting with a fierce tenacity in our marriage. We must fight for it making it a priority, fighting for that time together, fighting and guarding for it, fighting to make sure we're communicating well with one another. We must fight for regular time alone together in marriage, regular date nights, something that I must confess I don't do enough, but it's something that we must do if we're to fight for our marriage and make it a priority. We must fight for that of intimacy with one another, both uh, are all three sexually physically or uh spiritual and emotionally it's a priority if we're going to make marriage a priority as Christians these things must be done we must continue to learn about one another the likes and dislikes finding out what's going on what's had their ear that week what have you been listening to what have you been reading what if what has been working in your heart Continuing to learn and ask those basic questions of one another. Asking, and, and men, we're probably the guiltiest of this. I just had to do this the other night, if I'm being completely honest. How do we love and serve our wives well? And how do they feel loved and served? Asking that if we don't know it. Part of making marriage a priority is emphasizing these and working at these. We must begin to continue to understand the need to choose to love. Even when we don't necessarily feel loved or they're not our favorite person. We choose to love because that's who we've entered covenant with until death do us part. Brothers and sisters, because of the beauty of marriage, because of what it portrays in the gospel and God's design for it, we need to cherish it and stop trying to put on uh, surrounding reasons and excuses why we can do away with it. But this isn't just a, a matter of marriage. This applies to that of the whole law. Marriage is the one being given an example here. But the reality is we do this with other parts of the law. We we see one thing and we're quick to say, oh, I'm going to put away, you know what, I can just, I can do this lie because I, it feels right. Uh, I need to keep something secret, so I'm going to lie about it. We, we make all sorts of excuses to put away the law in order to justify our sin. Again, marriage being the example here, the Christian what? What matters of the law are you trying to justify by taking an isolated verse in Scripture to justify it? We need to continually ask ourselves these questions because, believe it or not, the law still stands. Christ came to fulfill the law, but it still is a means that we are called to live by and follow as we follow Christ. Therefore, we don't need to find scapegoats of escaping the law. We need to hear and understand the law and what it means to live in the law in light of Christ, not escape it. So brothers and sisters, let's work hard and stop trying to evade the law and justify our sin, but live in the light of it. Because Christ did come. He did affirm the law. The Pharisees tried to test him, but they missed the point of it. Let's not do the same. But, there's a big but here. Uh, uh, That B-U-T comma but, there's hope and promise of eternal life, even as we continue to struggle with these things. Look with me uh, at verse 13. So, so as they come and ask this question, as he clarifies to his disciples on this whole thing of adultery, it says there in verse 13, and they were bringing children to him and he, that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. So in the midst of this, as Jesus is finishing up his teaching, all of a sudden, these children start being brought up to him, to be touched by him, that them being most likely their parents, they're bringing him to his parents. By the way, we're we're now in point number two, inheriting eternal life. So when Jesus sees this, the disciples trying to stop, there in verse 14 it says, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here the disciples see these children being brought, and they they become like, No, stop doing this. Stop bringing them near to him. This is a distraction from Jesus and his messianic. uh, Conquering work as king. Stop. This is going to take away from what he's doing here. The children aren't the primary here. They're, they're to be pushed aside. It's to be the, the adults, especially the men who, who are being emphasized. Jesus sees this and, and becomes indignant, mad at his disciples, stopping them. Why? Why? Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now let me pause here for a moment. Often when we read a verse like this, do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God, we begin to think, oh, it, we we need to flock to doing children's ministry. We need to to flock to doing those types of things. We want to share the gospel equally among generations. Children to senior citizens. This is not a call. Do not hinder the children in making every church be about children's ministry. It's not. That's not what it's saying here. We are not hindering children from coming if everything's not about them. I promise you. Look around at our churches. How many years have, has it been? Children's ministry, Awana, everything thrown at it. Where are the children in so many churches? Brothers and sisters, it's not just ours that are lacking young people. It's a lack of discipleship. It's not all about the kids. That's not what this is saying. And I hope to show us why as we continue to move through. But we need to understand that. There's something more about this than just everything being about the kids and and thrown in here. The disciples missed it, but I think often we in the church miss this and what it's trying to teach us here. Because in verse 15, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, if you notice in your Bibles here, between verse 16 and 17, in most Bibles, there's a heading trying to say this is two different things going on here. But here's the beauty of the Bible. One, that heading is not inspired. Most Bibles have it in. Even my ESV has it. It has this in here to try and and help us to try and read and understand. But often it causes us to miss what's actually going on. So actually 13 through 31 is actually one section focusing on one particular theme, namely that of the kingdom of God and inheriting it, entering the kingdom, inheriting eternal life. It's working here together. Because you see in in 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child of God or kingdom of God, like a child shall not enter it. But then in verse 17, it says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life and the kingdom of God go hand in hand. They're talking about the same thing, being with God forever in his kingdom, in his rule, for all eternity. These are the same thing working together. Jesus is teaching his disciples, here's why you allow the child, the children to come. But then now I'm going to show you this a step further. I'm going to show you here this this man comes up, running to Jesus, falls on his face before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The man in that moment should have gotten it. He's not good. He can't actually keep what's about to be followed. He needs to wake up and see that. But notice what he continues there. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man's like, wait a minute. I've done all this. I've kept all this since my youth. That means I've got eternal life, right? It doesn't say that, but I mean, you can imagine what's going on in his mind as Jesus teaches this. Because the man says, and he said to them there in verse 20, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. But notice what Jesus says in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man came, thinking that if, if he kept the law, what, what, what must I do to do it of my own accord? And the reality is, we can't do nothing to inherit eternal life of our own accord. This whole thing about receiving the kingdom of God like children is a call not for us to be dependent upon ourselves. We're to see our lack of ability to depend on ourselves. We're to see that the fact that when we look to the law to measure ourselves, we can't keep it. There is no good, there is none good but one God Himself. And yet, the disciples themselves are stunned as much as as the rich man. The rich man leaves just in despair, even though it says Jesus loved him. Jesus wanted him to get it, but he missed it. But look in verse 23, even at the disciples, they struggle. And it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But he, he just adds on. But Jesus said to them again, uh, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Notice that second saying. How does Jesus address the disciples? Children. Children. Twelve grown men Fishermen, tax collectors, and other works. Jesus dresses them as children. Going back to verse 14 and 15, receive the kingdom of God like children. But he he drives this home in what follows in verse 16 or, or 25. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Now, there's some confusion on this eye of the needle. Is it a literal eye? There's one tradition that'll say that this is a gate going into Jerusalem where the camels get down on all fours and somehow wiggle themselves through. I Actually, I do not believe it's that one. I do not believe that there's a literal, because historical tradition actually doesn't show that. There is no eye of the needle gate going into Jerusalem from a historical standpoint. But there is literally an eye of the needle, a sewing needle within the house that most within the culture would have known. And the point it's showing is this is not possible. Who can be saved? It's easier to go through an eye of a needle, the impossible, than for a man to inherit eternal life and be saved of their own accord. Look look how Jesus follows there in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not something we can earn of our own accord and inherit by our own doing. It's impossible for us. We can't. If we could, there would have been people saved long before Jesus came. But even those that are indeed saved, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they believed in the promise of God, of the conquering uh, seed of the woman that was coming to crush the head of the serpent. They were looking forward to this Messiah, this sacrifice, just as we look back. But it is only through this childlike faith that we actually are able to inherit salvation. So what is this childlike faith? It's that of a childlike dependence and trust. A childlike trust and dependence that trusts mom and dad when they say, let's go snipe hunting. A childlike trust and dependence when the youth leader says, hey, look, we're going to do something fun. We're going to go snipe hunting. They, they quickly trust and depend on that adult. They, they have no reason to believe they're lying to them. They let her wrong, and man, they can't trust because we fool them into it. But the point is, childlike faith is that of a deep-rooted trust and dependence where we completely depend upon another for our care. You know, having a a little two-year-old running around the house, she thinks she's independent. She thinks she wants to do everything on her own. It's great watching that because that means she's growing up. And one day she's going to. But in the meantime, she has to depend on mom and dad for a lot of things. She has to depend on mom and dad to to prepare her food, to to help her get a bath, to do all of the things of life from get to A to B. And that's the kind of dependence we have to depend on Christ for, for salvation. It's not about us being able to earn salvation of our own accord with just a little help. It's being utterly dependent on Jesus for that salvation. Because with man, it's impossible With us, it's impossible, but not for God. Because Christ came, he died in our place so that he could purchase us from that sin and death. But brothers and sisters, how quick do we forget this childlike faith? How quickly do we begin to trust in our religious activities for our ongoing salvation? How do we affirm ourselves more by what we're doing than what Christ has already done? How often in the midst of sin do we forget that it was by grace and grace alone, through faith alone, that we ever earned salvation. And therefore, as we're being kept in salvation, it is by that same faith that we need to trust. Brothers and sisters, we're going to fail over and over again. Just even from the Sunday school lesson this morning, looking at at relationships and conflict, part of the reason this exists is because of our fallen nature. We're all sinful. We all continue to struggle with this. And yet, if we're depending on ourselves, we see that and seem like, man, I failed again. I don't have any hope. There's another relationship gone sour because of conflict. Man, I must not be a good Christian. You know, maybe I'm not a Christian. But when we put our faith not in our own efforts, but in what Christ has done, I'm free. I'm free to live. I'm free to be justified by Christ, that he has done it, that my salvation's in him and him alone. I trust in that versus me. That childlike faith is essential for us even if we've been walking with Christ for 30 or 40 or 50 years or more. Because it's that childlike faith that's our security. We continue to lean upon Jesus now, just as we did the day we believed in Him, the day we entered into salvation. It's that faith that we must continue to trust in over and over again, Christian. And friend, if you're here this morning and you have, this is the first time you're hearing of this salvation message, or maybe you've put it off and, and been trusting in other things, your religiosity, how many times you're at church or, or your good morals, see that your need is not those, but it is this childlike faith in Jesus. Believe that today and be saved. Tell others of this so that they may believe and be saved. It's this childlike, simple faith that is ours. The question is, will we put it in Jesus and him alone? And then as we battle for faith, will we continue to allow that faith to go deeper and deeper? Just as raising a little one, Their trust in mom and dad and in those around them only grows as they see the trustworthiness of the adult. Trust me, the moment you teach youth about snipe, they begin to doubt you just a little bit because they they don't have that full trust in you. They still trust you, but you have to work to regain that trust after deceiving them. But the more we know that God is trustworthy, our faith is deepened. The more we come to meditate and dwell upon the riches of Christ, our faith is deepened. We need to look more to Christ then to deepen our faith, to strengthen our faith and stop looking so much to ourselves. Meditate on the riches of what Christ has done. Meditate on things like Colossians 1:15 through 23. Honestly, that's the reason I began uh, almost a year ago Preaching through Colossians was from 115 through 23 because it's a glorious passage of Christ and who he is and what we have in him. Meditate on Christ. Dwell upon him in the riches. Let that strengthen and ensure your ongoing growth in faith because we need to grow in that faith in order to persevere until the end. Because our third and final point Look with me at verses 29 and falling. Our third point is leaving it all. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. So in other things, everything Peter said that we've left, Jesus is saying you're going to receive a hundred times more than that. But notice what he follows this up with, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Why do we need to continue hearing of faith and being reminded of that faith and have a faith that is continually growing? Because this world is going to press against us. As we are identified with Christ, the world is going to treat us just how it did Jesus, it's going to hate us. The world will hate us, Christian, if we stand with Jesus. We must continue to deepen that faith, knowing that he outweighs it all. That we can forsake everything to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Why? Because he's the anchor of our salvation. He's the one we hold and trust in. He's the one we're dependent upon. Therefore, it's worthy of being counted as one who is hated for his name's sake. It's worth being identified with him and pressing on because he's worthy of following. Christian, will we behold the beauty of our salvation in Christ and hold fast to it? Will we continue to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation? Or will we turn to other things? The rich man wanted to trust in his riches more than he did Jesus. The disciples wanted to trust in their standing more than they did Jesus. They were more concerned with how they were viewed. They were more concerned with not hindering the mission of Jesus with children. And yet, it's by that childlike faith. We must come to Jesus to be saved. And in the same way, do we see the beauty of the gospel in our marriage and labor and work hard for it. Let's pray. Heavenly father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the reminders we have this morning of simple childlike faith in Jesus. God, We pray this morning that you will help each of us to grow in that faith, to rest more in Jesus, and trust in him alone. And Lord, may we rejoice at that. Lord, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing our closing song?